So can I start asking you what it's like a day in, li in the life of a smart contract engineer, like, or a week in life? What, what's your day-to-day -day like? So, well, although, you know, we, we call ourselves proper smart contract engineers, but as it sits, you write the smart contract for like the first couple of months of the lifetime of a project, the development lifetime of a project. And then you're mostly just handling the web two side of it, right? Because the smart contracts are done, you maybe send it off for audit and then, uh, you know, you just can't sit there, right? So you have to take up some other work. So in, in my case, it's smart contracts plus the backend work. So, well, if I'm writing the smart contracts, it's a, a lot of it, a lot of my time is spent not on the coding side, but rather on the design, because if the good smart contracts are, are the ones that are pretty concise and small, they're they not huge and they're very easily readable. So a lot of time is spent on, on the whiteboard or on a paper, just conceptualizing, writing out the whole, you know, the flow of uh, the contract. And then once that is ready, yeah, it's, it's all coding up. And then it really depends on which stage we are. If you're in the initial stages, it's just, you, you know, just look at the paper and write something. And then once we have that initial structure laid out, it's all testing. And I think testing is one of my favorite part of it because it's, it's really fun playing around with something that you have written and understanding where you are going wrong. And it's, it's testing is a really, great learning experience because you get to break your own stuff and then that's pr pretty fun so yeah most mo if i'm writing smart contracts it's mostly these two you are either trying to break your own stuff so that someone else doesn't break it or you know you're conceptualizing and writing it out you mentioned that you're also a back-end engineer does that yeah. mean um in the traditional sense that you would have like a, a, a an express js or a a jungle application that's like uh doing something extra on the smart contract or you're talking about an indexer like a, a dipped up kind of thing so i'm talking about an indexer and also things like for instance just in the morning i was writing out a receipt generator so we have this backend that will generate receipts, which are signed receipts, which can be used to claim an airdrop that will be happening uh, for a project where I work right now. So uh, it's pretty dynamic, not just limited to APIs, but uh, yeah, general things that run outside of the front end and blockchain infrastructure. You also mentioned that you're involved in the design. Uh, is that, um, what would it, would imagine when we having a uh, like you draw on a board that i don't know your react application go to some sort of transaction that behave like has some sort of interaction with a contract and go through the indexer and that gets saved in a database that kind of diagram mm -hmm. kind of design. so yeah it's definitely uh i would say it's two things first it's obviously the diagrams and then the second one depending upon what kind of application I'm building or what kind of application I'm writing the smart contracts for, it can also be a lot of mathematics, both the, the flow that which contract is interacting with which other contract and also the internal working of individual contracts, which I say most of the times it's just bare, bare math. 
would you say that math it's a prerequisite for someone that wants to get into web3 development uh i wouldn't say that it's a prerequisite but eventually if you really want to grow to be like maybe a senior engineer then it's definitely important so not not important when you are just starting out but eventually you need to have some basic idea of not just mathematics but i would say in general like algorithms and data structures mm is that like traditional computer science mathematics like discrete math or what we're talking about here cryptography based on my experience i haven't faced a lot of pure cryptography but then yeah the the college level uh, discrete mathematics really helped me out like i mean i won't really put things like trees and the understanding of maybe binary search or avl trees under mathematics but i mean yeah like the problem solving aspect of it is really important as you go down the lane as a senior engineer and you went to college you studied information technology in college right um okay let me take a step back why did you decide to study it in the first place firstly in india we in most of the schools and by school i mean like before the because in our case we call it college and school is different so in school uh, most of us started out with programming uh, as early as grade 9 like right in grade 9 we were like introduced to java and yeah initially it was like like if i if i tell it to someone who is not from india they would be like like why would someone in grade 9 start with java but then yeah that that push really fascinated us because it was a completely different world that you know you could you could write something and you could build it out and i think in india in india it's really famous that people don't really focus much on practical stuff but this was the first practical stuff that we were introduced to because i mean yeah you you write some lines and you see some things happening on the screen and you play around with it and something else happens and that really fascinated me and yeah then four years of that and then i was like okay i i must study something related to computers in my college how was it related to your um current work is you mentioned that mathematics it's something that like college college level discrete math is something that it's useful did you find other uh fields on your degree that were related to what we're doing right now uh not much i would say but then the general just the general concepts like system architecture and computer organization all of these do help when you hear some words flying around because yeah when you're working in a team there will be devops engineers there will be people working with cloud technologies and uh, all of the things that you end up learning in college you just have that background and you don't really have to go over to google every time when someone throws that word around so i think that is where all of the extra stuff besides the core data structures algorithms and mathematics that we don't so that really helped a lot mm, to talk the talk if you yeah will. exactly I exactly see. what's your opinion on coding boot camps um that's maybe a general question we have i don't know web traditional web to boot camps um but i saw a lot of uh, i mean both of us are involved in Uh, a web3 boot camp but also i saw a lot of fintech boot camps that they offer 
a mixture of machine learning and blockchain technology. And I, I thought that was really interesting. So I, I was wondering, what, what's your, uh, how do you feel about coding boot camps in general? Uh, well, by boot camps, if for, for me, I, I really like courses, like the very well-structured courses, because even when I got into Web3, I started with a really popular course. Like it was popular back in 2018. It was by a popular developer uh, who is who goes by the name Stephen Grider. Mm -hmm. uh, he makes Udemy courses and he has this course on Ethereum, which I started off back in 2018. And a lot of us developers who got into Web3 that time were were actually, were, they, they were able to get in because of that course. So yeah, I'm all for these courses or boot camps, but then obviously they, they must be focused, like pretty focused on a variety of topics in one domain. Like you just said, like there's also this thing where they go for machine learning and blockchain together. I, I don't really support that one because then you are being loaded, like two different, entirely different domains are being unloaded on your mind. And if you are entirely new to both of them, that might be overwhelming. But if a bootcamp is really structured in a way where you, they first introduce you to the concepts and then they also show you the design patterns and then eventually they give you hands-on in a proper structured way then i'm all for boot camps because i mean yeah even they they have helped me to become a better engineer yeah ml and blockchain does seem like a lot in i don't know three months <laughs> yeah do you think that's important um to start with ethereum is that uh, to be honest, if it was 2019, I would have said yes, because back then, Tezos uh, or even any other blockchain you see right now, they didn't have that uh, amount of material available. But right now, especially in the last, I would say, six to eight months, the dynamics have completely changed. And if someone wants to get into Web3, I would definitely tell them, don't even look at Ethereum or EVM, go for the other ones, and especially come for Tezos, because that i mean this material that there has been like it's been so much refined in in the past one year that it's much more beginner friendly than the ones present on other chains so yeah that's definitely not a mandate to start with ethereum you also mentioned like devops uh, the traditional devops of web 2 is that translatable to web 3 do we still need that skill set on web 3 or is it different? It's, it definitely helps because like if, let's say if you are also handling the backend aspect of it, then you would need to understand how Docker, something like Docker works because if, if you're given an AWS instance and you just want to run some application, it's much better to run with Docker. So it, I think an understanding of some of the basic technologies and by basic, I mean, I think it's just Docker, it really helps. That, yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned Docker because I was looking to some job descriptions of Tezos developers and they often require Node.js and Dockers. And I was puzzled by that. By It, was, it sounds like uh, <laughs> a pretty standard Web 2 application with the additional step that it would be the blockchain. I think in this case on Tezos, there has been a slight inclination towards using Docker on a lot of things. I'm not really sure why this, like in what context was this job requiring Docker, but 
uh, there are things like the Lego compiler is, uh, you must know about Lego, right? It's the programming language for smart contracts uh, on Tezos. So the compiler of Lego is uh, based on Docker. Like right now they also have a Brute app, but it's mostly there on Docker and several other things are also Docker based. So I think maybe that's why a general understanding of Docker is really appreciated in any Tezos based job. I see. And you started as a game developer, am I correct? It's correct. Can I ask what was the motivation? Uh, I think it was like, it, you can trace it back to the initial days when I just started learning programming. And then I was like, you could build anything. And the first thing that would come to my mind is, okay, you can build games because uh, I mean, yeah, that's what most people in grade eight or grade nine do. They play video games a lot. And it was mostly that aspect of it that pushed me towards game development in the initial days when I started learning programming. They are definitely cool projects. Do, do you still play games? Uh, I, I wish I, get a, I would get a lot of time to play, but I don't get. But then, yeah, even like sometimes I do squeeze in a few hours uh, on the weekends. And, and have you ever thought about, because there's a lot of innovation on web three native games, right? Have you ever thought about approaching that route? So I'm actually a bit skeptical about web three games in general. I mean, this is a different conversation, but just to give uh, an overview of what I think, uh, I feel like right now people are trying to put games in web three, which is wrong. What you can do is you can put web three in games. Uh, what I mean is like people launch these NFTs and then they try to make a game out of it, which is, uh, if you see that's the other way around, what you should have is you have a game and then you introduce some Web3 aspects. Like if you have in-game assets or uh, in-game things that you can buy, you can tokenize them and put them on the blockchain as an NFT. That is the obvious way. Or you can take a step forward and maybe put the game the gaming process itself, if, if it's maybe like a card game, which, is, which doesn't take a whole lot of computational power, then you can put that thing on the blockchain. So all that works, but a very small uh, number of people are doing that. In most of the cases, it is the other way around, where you are trying to build the infrastructure, but you never really reach the game. So that's why I have been a little skeptical about Web3 gaming. But in the future, if, if the dynamic if the dynamics of it keep changing, then I would definitely like to explore it. But how would it work? Like what you're suggesting is, for example, if I play a game and I buy like a magic sword, then I could transfer that to other game. And that would be a more interesting idea. Yes, exactly. That would be a great one. But how would we um, standardize the metadata of that magic sword to be wouldn't we need like a, a centralized kind of entity that says, okay, if you're going to build an, a weapon that's going to be used across multiple games, then those things need to exist. Do you know what I mean? I, I mean, yeah, I, I get your point. So in this case, like if let, let's say if Ubisoft has made a game and then there's some other company like Gameloft who wants to adopt one of those NFTs, then that's a different thing. But one one uh, situation where this can work really well if is that the, the parent game company just distributes it across its own games. 
So let's say if you have two completely unrelated games, but it ha they have the same parent company, then yeah, they, they have all the data. They are running the indexers. They, so they can make it easily interoperable to use the NFTs between two games that are not directly related. So the way, may I ask, what kind of games have you worked on? Uh, I've mostly worked on mobile games, uh, what we call hyper-casual games, where in most of the cases you can just hold it in one hand and play by swiping on the screens. What was the stack? Was that a Unity game, like C-Sharp? Yeah, it was all Unity and C-Sharp. Nice. And after game developer, was the next step Tezos India? Uh, after game developer, my next step was actually Ethereum because uh, back in 2018, when I started, Tezos was just starting out. There wasn't really a buzz around it yet. Like the ICO was just about to happen. So at that time, I definitely, it was, Ethereum was the only thing around. And that is what I started with. And it was, honestly, it was just like an exploration thing that, okay, there's this thing called Web3. At that time, you know, the Web3, there, there wasn't a term called Web3. By Web3, people thought, that you are referring to the web3.js ethereum library so it's that old so yeah that time it, i just started off as an exploration thing but eventually i really found the interest in this domain because uh, i i felt that uh, the field of game development wasn't uh, that lucrative in india and also uh, I, I mean in game development i felt you need to have a certain amount of creativity in you which i felt that i was lacking my mind was a bit more computational and mathematical so i thought that yeah just out of self-awareness maybe i should change my domain and yeah then it was i i got got full time into web3 and after working on evm projects for about a year and a half or maybe a couple of years i I joined Tezos India. Now, come on, like Tezos India was also, it was sort of like a boot camp, although it was a fellowship, but you can think of it like a boot camp. So yeah, when I started out with that. What was your experience with Ethereum? Did you like the, the tooling, the, the solidity? Was it pleasant? Pleasant, maybe not the right word, but did you enjoy the building process in the, the Ethereum space? So I definitely, like, it's it's actually a funny story. So, like, when I was in Ethereum that time, I didn't really have anything to compare it with because that was the only thing I knew. I built on Polygon and Ethereum both. And, I mean, that's the, the tooling is the same. You don't really have any difference between the EVM chains. So, uh, yeah, back uh, the first couple of years, I didn't have anything to compare it with. But there was a small period when my Tezos development overlapped with my EVM development back in, uh, early 2021 and that time I was really getting frustrated with Tezos because the tooling wasn't really good or as good as Ethereum I would say and there were some things that you had to do on Tezos which you didn't have to do on Ethereum and yeah it was a slight frustrating slight bit frustrating but as uh, you know time went on and right now it's almost the end of 2022 and and right now uh, recently, I got back to doing some things on EVM because my workplace required that. And suddenly, I, I realized that EVM has not moved a bit from where I left it, but Tezos has come so far and far apart that 
uh, I'm really having trouble with working with EVM right now because some things that I do with one click, I need at least 10 clicks there. So yeah, it's been a, a very... I also heard a video of yours saying that, um, I'm paraphrasing here and please correct me if, if yeah. I'm saying something wrong. But I, I, I remember you saying that, and that stuck with me, that uh, on Ethereum, you have some set building blocks that you can build upon, but because on Tezos, you have to do everything from scratch that allow you to grow as a developer. Yes. So by this, I meant that, uh, let, let's say, you know, on Ethereum, on EVM, uh, if you see Uniswap has been built out quite a while ago, Uniswap V2, and every other EVM chain that has uh, a DEX or an AMM, it's just a copy paste of what Uniswap has built. In most of the cases, they don't even bother to have a separate repository. They just link you up to the Uniswap repository and there you go. You just copy it and you put it and there is no Web3 aspect at all in, in there, right? So, I mean, if someone is starting out, they have everything at their disposal, even if someone is trying to build out a new project. So that complete building from scratch experience goes away. Now, there is obviously a good thing about it and there is a bad thing. The good thing is you have a lot less to do if you are just focused on the product. But if you're focused on learning, then that's really bad because you have lit literally it's like how, how it used to be in schools. The teachers used to say that if you're working out the solution or to a problem, keep the solution keys away. So like right now on Ethereum, you have the keys with you. You, you can literally get the solution of any problem with like at your fingertips. But on Tezos, if you're trying to build out something completely new, then yeah, even some of the basic things you have to write from scratch. That's not really applicable now because I think that video was recorded six months ago. But in the last six months, so much uh, of open source development has taken place that yeah, we, we have come far. But still, on Tezos, the learning experience is much deeper than what it is on EVM. Is that a similar argument to on web to how some people might rely too much in certain frameworks and not deeply understand what is happening uh, under the hood? I would say yes, to some extent, yes, but uh, not like I would say that uh, if someone is learning React.js and they are uh, leaving out something like the pure HTML, then that is maybe okay, like not going too deep into HTML, but if someone is learning React.js, but they, do, they leave out the basics of JavaScript, then I think, yeah, that, that is what we can compare it with. And what, what was the, the spark that made you choose Tezos over Ethereum? I think it was in the initial days, even though I was frustrated with the tooling, it was this, that I was really learning a lot of things. And since the teams were small, I, I really had to solve a lot of problems on my own. So that was really a huge motivation to get going with Tezos. Did you, did you learn about Tezos before Tezos India or was during Tezos India that you came across with it? Like uh, back in, I think, just when the lockdowns started happening, that time there were a lot of hackathons, online hackathons that got uh, trendy. And that is when some Tezos hap uh, hackathon happened back in India. And that is when I got introduced to Tezos. I didn't participate in the hackathon, but then 
I did uh, do some research on Tezos, and then it th- there were some aspects that looked really interesting. So uh, then I applied for the Tezos India Fellowship. You mentioned that it was like a coding boot camp, but as I researched it a little bit, it seems like a highly selective process, and like ten people were selected to that. Uh, yeah, that's why. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's why I I was a bit. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't really much com- very comfortable calling it a boot camp. So uh, there was the boot camp aspect of it where there were workshops and you, uh, mentors were assigned to us where we were taught how everything works on Tezos. But the other aspect of it was more like, uh, like Google Summer of Code where you have to uh, bring up a proposal where, uh, about what you want to develop on Tezos after learning it. And then in the next two months, you have to build it out and then show it to everyone in a demo. And if the uh, if your project stands out, then there is also a chance of getting a grant to take your project forward. I also saw that in a bunch of your projects, um, they're related to uh, quadratic funding. Was yes, the research did that start on Tezos India? Was that before? How did you come across with the subject? So yeah, this research did start in Tezos uh, when I was a part of the Tezos India Fellowship. And uh, basically, we were actually given a set of problems that exist on Tezos. And one big problem was community funding. And that is when the quadratic funding idea came to my mind and also a few others uh, who were also uh, a part of the fellowship. And then we, uh, as a team together, we built out the... We built out a community funding platform based on quadratic funding, and we called it Kickflow. Yeah, eventually we didn't continue it after a couple of years, but yeah, it's still open source and it's still around. But uh, yeah, that is what we built out of the fellowship, a quadratic funding platform. Nice. Can I ask you how it works, Kickflow? So basically, it has two concepts. One is just general funding part where if there's a listed project, you can go ahead and fund the project. And the second aspect is quadratic funding. Now, quadratic funding is interesting because let's say if, let's say if there's the foundation that has $50,000 to be given out in a certain period, then usually uh, the foundation has a really selective rate, only about 15% of the projects are selected for the grant. Uh, I, I mean, that's the number for the last month as far as I know. But what if the foundation wants to decentralize this selection process and give it to the community? Now, one thing that can be done is a simple voting process. So if, let's say if there's 10 projects, then the community will just vote and it's one token, one vote. And yeah, based on which project gets how much votes, the $50,000 can be eventually distributed between the projects, right? But in this case, there is always that bias that if some bad entity ends up hap- ends up not bad entity but maybe uh, someone who supports a project really well and has a lot of tokens then they can direct a lot of funding to that project right so l- let me give you an example let's say if we have just two projects and we have $50,000 to be divided between them and the first project got 1000 votes by just one person but the second project got 500 votes that's less than 1,000, but it got it from maybe 20 or 30 individuals. 
then we clearly know that the second project has a much higher reach than the first project, right? So even though there's more votes, we ideally the project that more people want need to be given more funding because yeah, they need it for the scalability, right? So in this case, the normal voting process doesn't work. And instead of that, what we need is a quadratic voting process. Now in quadratic voting process, what happens is instead of just counting in the total number of votes, that is 1,500, we also factor in the number of people who have given the votes. So in the first case, it's just one person who has given it. So yeah, the eventual factor makes the 500 much larger than 1,000 because of the consideration of the number of people who have voted. And yeah, then eventually the a larger chunk of $50,000 will go to the project that received votes from more people rather than the one who received more votes. So yeah, it's, it's mostly this and the only thing where uh, the, the way it's implemented on the platform is that instead of votes, we have uh, contributions. So uh, we don't see uh, if a project has received $1,000. We see if a project has received $1,000 from the community, we see from how many members has it received it? Has it received it from just one person or from 10 or 20 people? And if it has received it from 10 or 20 people, then they will get a lot larger chunk from uh, a sponsored pool of funds. So in that case, there's a balance between um, people with more tokens and the most quantity of votes, and you try to balance those things to be, I'm trying to avoid the word democratic here, but... Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, you're definitely on the right track. So, uh, I mean... Uh, that's why it's called liberal radicalism. That is the most complex term to be used for explaining this whole funding process. That uh, the more people use, uh, the number of people is more important than the amount of money the people have. That's beautiful, man. That's an extra step because the whole idea with blockchain is with, uh, especially for um, proof of stake, with your coins, you can have voting power. Yeah, but that's one extra step that you're promoting um, number of votes and not just I have more coins, therefore my opinion matters more. Yeah, exactly. And after uh, QuickFlow uh, test, your, uh, the Plenty Network was the next step? Yeah, that was the next step. So... Uh, actually, the the president of Tezos India, he is also uh, at the managing position at Tezure. So he's one of the co-founders of Tezure. So we, we knew each other pretty well. And he brought me in for the development of Plenty Network. And that has been my primary focus for the last 10 months. And is it somehow like AMM, is it somehow related to the quadratic funding? Or is that something completely new? This is something completely different. This is completely DeFi focused. Uh, it's it's something that already pre is present on other chains in different forms. Uh, one such is Curve Finance on Ethereum, and another one is Velodrome Finance on Optimism, which is an L2 network. So it's actually an AMM, but it has uh, it's AMM plus an incentive model. So the AMM part is just the same as Uniswap but it's the incentive model which is really complicated.
Can you give me a one-liner? <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So uh, I think it's difficult to explain it in one-liner, but let's say if you have an AMM, uh, usually AMMs require liquidity to work right. So if I put in one token and I get another token, but if the contract doesn't have enough tokens, then there will be something called slippage. So if I give, let's say, $5 worth of token, I don't get $5 worth of token back. I may get just $2 worth of token back. So uh, that is because there aren't any enough tokens in the pool to extract, right? So usually in such cases, we need to give a small incentive to people to put more tokens in the pool. And the usual incentive is, you know, you just have some kind of a token and you give it to the people and assume the token has market value in the long term. Uh, but that usually fails. Uh, as you see, uh, a, a very popular example is SushiSwap. That, that is one of the first AMMs who started this uh, reward thing that you, you put tokens in a pool. This put tokens in a pool is called adding liquidity. So you add liquidity and you end up getting a reward in some kind of a token. But uh, sadly, this model doesn't work because if the token loses value, then people wouldn't really want to add liquidity anymore. And once again, the DEX or the AMM doesn't work. It works, but obviously I don't want to put in $5 and just get in $2, right? So we designed a better incentive model where the token uh, has utility so that people always want it and you know it doesn't lose its value completely and also in, in let's say if there is a new project that has popped up and i want to be a part of that project but then the project requires me to own some kind of a token then a dex is the place where i can buy the token right so in this case once again i will be a user i see and Right now, Tezos just hit 80 cents. Is that something worrying? Or do you think that's just a cycle that will, uh, you know, it's a volatile new thing. Do you think that that's something that people should be worried or there are there steps to be taken? Uh, I would say that I, the main reason there has been this down spiral is because we don't have a whole lot of institutional investors on Tezos, which now there will be a lot of argument whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But for me, I really see whether the tech is legitimate and yeah, the tech is legitimate and it's growing day by day. There are upgrades coming out every single day. We are soon about to hit uh, the technology which allows for a million transactions per second. And that would really be the most advanced L2 solution in the entire industry. So if you see that, then in that case, the price starts to look, to look deceiving. Like, okay, it's 80 cents, but why is it 80 cents when you can do all of that stuff? So, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, for me, it's one of the, it's like the, like a hopeless romantic for Tezos that, yeah, eventually it will get all the recognition it wants. So, yeah, it's really not something where I, you can say that Yeah, it's going to increase because we really don't know what's going to happen. But one thing for sure that yeah, the tech is going to be better day by day. And that is what matters. And what do you think it's needed? Because I 100% agree with you. The tech is solid and the price of the currencies, they are mostly based on perception, right? 
So what do you think it's needed in order for this ecosystem to flourish? I think more definitely more projects and not just more projects, but maybe projects that really market themselves well, because I've noticed this on Tezos. There are a whole lot of projects that really missed out on the marketing aspect of it. And most of the market, sorry. Sorry, I really want to know what you mean by that. How how did they miss and what exactly was the point that they should be going for? Well, uh, I mean, even I, even when I was running Kickflow, uh, we think a lot of, uh, we we think of everything from the tech perspective that yeah, we have made something that works, then people should use it. But people also should know that it exists, and people should also know that there is a use for them, and they should be using it. So that is where I would say there's advertising and targeted marketing that is uh, really important. And when I say some projects have missed it, I mean, on Tezos, if you see, there are a lot of projects that are seriously good, uh, but they, they forget that they don't, they, like, to flourish, they have to go beyond their community and maybe have more extensive connections and go and get their marketing side of it sorted out. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's difficult to explain in words, but just making something and tweeting it out doesn't get users yeah. and that i think that is what a lot of projects need to realize that's let's say if, if you are a DeFi project then uh recently i think it was yous who allowed for institution institutional investments and you you can see the the, the tvl shorted up it went from like a few millions to 30 million tvl 30 million dollars sorry so yeah these little things i, I really matter on a different subject, uh, OCaml, uh, do, do you use it on your day-to-day? I have been getting into OCaml for the past three to four months. Uh, I'm yet to use pure OCaml uh, on a daily basis, but I do use Lego for the smart contracts. So yeah, I use the OCaml variant of Lego. And in the same video that I mentioned before, and I apologize that it might be outdated, but you mentioned that people should start with uh, Uniswap and uh, not Colibri. What's the Ethereum version of Colibri? I forgot the name. Uh, that's MakerDAO. MakerDAO, yes. Uh, I think that that's because the, that was a different crowd uh, with, with whom I was dealing with. That was not a technical crowd. So for them, uh, I, I guess... Uh, non-technical material is more important and the moment you start getting into non-technical material you have to go back to the roots the ones that started long before anything happened on tezos so that was the main reason of suggesting those platforms because uh i mean yeah tezos has kipuswap and colibri but if you go ahead and type something like introductory material to both of these you might not get it because these are proper platforms that are working that are pretty solid but if you want learning material, you have to go back to the origin, right? And why did you decide to learn OCaml? Was it um, because you wanted to read something that was in OCaml? Because you wanted, I don't know, some to dabble with some core development? What, what was the motivation behind it? It was this, like mostly because it was heavily used in Tezos. And uh, I would also mainly started with just me getting 
familiarity with the syntax so that I can understand Camel Lego. And then eventually I just started learning it and I went too deep into it. Do you like it? Yeah, definitely. Like, at, like I've also been uh, a Rust. I've also been learning Rust. Like I've not been learning right now, but there was a time when I was learning Rust and trying to build some stuff. And it, it's really crazy. You have to just sit there and try to satisfy the borrow checker. But on OKML, you can just focus on what you are trying to do instead of trying to make the programming language happy. Yeah, th that's... Uh, I really know what you mean. And it's... Uh, I think it's closer related to how we think. Do you know what I mean? It's not like a set exactly, of... Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. And this is especially observable if you're doing uh, like proper data structure-based... Uh, programming like if you're dealing with trees or anything that has basically nodes and stuff so you, when you're writing it you're really doing what you might do on a paper like you know you go from this node to that node to that node and yeah yeah it feels like you are mapping your mind which is really awesome exactly whereas when you approach especially when you're doing something like i don't know procedural or object oriented it's more like you have your thoughts and you have to take one extra step in order to put in those formats rather that than... Is right. uh, and on top of that, if you get something like a borrow checker of Rust, then yeah, life becomes difficult. Yeah, cool. Uh, do, do you have any recommendation for someone that wants to get into OCaml? Okay, what, what would be a good, I don't know, tutorial, book, or a good uh, entry point? I would say the Cornell course uh, by Dr. Michael Clark, that is really awesome because that goes right from the beginning. So uh, even if you just have a very basic understanding of programming, you can go ahead with that. The Cornell course by Dr. Michael Clark, it's available on YouTube. Next, I would like to ask you for some tips for people that want to get started in um, Tezos development. For How do you think would be the best approach do you need to be already a web developer and then move into Tezos? Or is it okay to start over, to start right away with Tezos, not knowing like basic web development? I think basic understanding of basic web development is really important because, uh, and it's not really about making websites or anything, but it's just about understanding how servers and uh, how requests to servers work, that you have a front end, you are sending requests to a server, you are getting it back. Just uh, having the ability to map that kind of uh, an architecture in your mind really helps because when you're building a smart contract, okay, I've written the code, I, I know a lot of mathematics, I've written out a code that does something, but I will always be stuck on that position. Like what really happens after that when I deploy the contract, when it's running, it will always feel like a black box which you are unable to break if you don't understand web development properly. So, yeah, I think the understanding of web development is really important. So what what would be the building blocks? Like uh, an understanding of, I don't know, HTTP? Do, do you need to be like a, a JavaScript React person or a Python Jungle person? What, what, what would be the, the steps? So what would be the tech stack? Yes. Uh, no, the tech stack is really flexible. You, you can either be an express guy or a Django guy. It doesn't really matter. It can 
it goes both ways. It's really about the understanding of how a server is built out and how the requests are going. Just it shouldn't feel like a black box. So let's say if you're typing something on Google, and if I ask you, just give me an over, like like an overview of what do you think is happening in the background, then you must be able to explain that. Like even if you say as little as there's a request going to the server, and then the server is processing it, and they're sending it back, and then the packets are being collected together, and then you are seeing something on your screen, uh, yeah, you have enough knowledge to go beyond writing a smart contract and understanding what's going on. So this doesn't necessarily mean that the person should be a coder. So it could be like, I don't know, a technical PM that knows, you know, the 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 client server interaction, but wants to dabble with Tezos, with Web3, that would be a perfectly good place to start. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, actually, like if you if you just even have the theoretical understanding, you have never coded, you can still get along with all of this. It's like it will definitely be a steeper learning curve, but it's never impossible if you have the basic idea. Because, you know, I've seen a lot of people who are initially, uh, who initially started off with non-tech backgrounds uh, and they just taught themselves how to write smart contracts and they are building some really cool stuff. So yeah, it's definitely possible. Do you have, on, on your team, uh, what would you say are people's background? Uh, on my team, I think almost everyone has an engineering degree. So it's a little bit on, on the traditional side, but maybe that's because a lot of the team members are Indians. And in, in India, you have that the mandate of having an academic background but uh, but i've worked with team members not like my team but especially when i was on uh, on ethereum where there were teams where the cto was from a, a non-tech background but they got themselves so deep into learning all of this that now that they can be at the technical position such a leading technical position at a proper web3 company and another thing that uh, I, we briefly talked about this before, but um, you mentioned that before you recommended Ethereum because of the public that you're talking to and uh, the time that it was, because at the time the documentation was not what it is right now or the tooling of Tezos is not what it is right now. But I myself, like I'm learning Tezos right now, I'm spending a big chunk of my time trying to understand this and I constantly wonder should I learn Ethereum it, even in the sense of um, maybe I want to build a project so I could read something that already exists in a more robust ecosystem and copy it in order to understand how the things are done or a lot of the reference even within the Tezos community they refer to something in Ethereum. So would you recommend someone learning Ethereum or do you think that they should just focus on Tezos? I think this reference thing is really huge because uh, let's say if you're building out a project or even if a project is built out, it's back to what I said before that uh, there's a lot more extra content that is available uh, on Ethereum because you know, there are people who do that. So there are content writers who have written a ton of content on things like 
AMMs and stable coins, and the references that may, they make are references to Ethereum applications. Uh, so because of that, there is a slight edge when it comes to non-technical theoretical content, which is more prevalent on Ethereum. So uh, I think when I say Tezos has become more matured, I say it has become more matured when it comes to the tech, because I mean, if you're just starting out with smart contracts, you would feel like, okay, Ethereum feels or Solidity feels really JavaScript-ish. It's, it's really good. But the moment you get deeper and deeper and deeper, you get deeper into optimization and you start seeing assembly code uh, on EVM, then th that's where things get interesting because something like Mikkelsen on Tezos, it, like back when I started, it was obviously very archaic and cryptic. But now that I see Mikkelsen compared to assembly code on Ethereum, like that's so much more readable. Mikkelsen is so much more readable compared to that. And you don't really have to go down that optimization hole where you write code, which no one really understands. Like, what is it doing? That's why there are jokes around that you have to properly comment out your assembly code else no one will understand what it's doing. But that's really not the case if you're writing something, some complex stuff in Mikkelsen. You will understand it, even though it looks like just a bunch of instructions. And if you were to advise someone that's already uh, a full-stack developer, let's say, yeah. and wants to uh, become a Tezos developer, what would say would be the roadmap, the step-by-step -step in order to do that? I mean, first would definitely be understanding how a blockchain works, what exactly is the Web3 aspect of it all, why do you need a blockchain, what are smart contracts. So once you get the theoretical aspect of it right, then I mean, you can just jump into writing smart contracts. Right now, the languages have become so high level that it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to understand what's going on. So yeah, what, first, you, you go with the theory, understand what blockchains are, understand what smart contracts are, then go on to writing smart contracts. And I think experimentation is really important. You make little small smart contracts and deploy them and then just interact with them and see how it's working, how, how you are molding the chain by sending transactions to a smart contract so if you get the understanding of that then you can go to the next level which is trying to make a front end which interacts with these smart contracts so yeah it's it's a three-step process the concept the conceptual understanding of blockchains and smart contracts followed by uh, writing smart contracts and playing around with them and then eventually going on to understanding and writing a front end that can interact with these contracts and yeah, I mean, this, this is like a complete beginner's package. And then you can go for things like indexers and other backend infrastructure. And, and that would, what would you recommend as a um, initial project? Because something that really resembled, that, that really struck me when you, you gave uh, the talk that we mentioned a couple of times, was that uh, you said that you made a few smart contracts, like voting smart contracts, and I have done a bunch of those, and it felt like on Web2 when you do, I don't know, a uh, to-do app, you know, which yeah, is, yeah. you understand the concept, but you're going nowhere from there. So it's like, exactly, okay, exactly. this is interesting, but pretty useless. So what would be uh, the meaningful project, the go-to project in your opinion? I mean, if you, then it's a little biased. I think 
six months ago, I was so biased towards finance that I said, you have to make something like an AMM. That is the only way forward for you. But like right now, yeah, I'm still a little inclined towards build an AMM, build a basic AMM, something like Uniswap. Uh, it will take time, but research it out, build it out, because you will learn almost every single topic uh, that that's, you need to know uh, for writing a smart contract. So yeah, build out an AMM. Uh, apart from that, like right now, if since NFTs are also getting really hot, I would say try out something in NFTs that you feel th that there should be an in NFTs. Like maybe think of something like dynamic token metadata. It's been really hot lately, and uh, I've been noticing a lot of developers have been experimenting with it, and it is something where you don't really need to have extra knowledge of something else to get into. So. Yeah, even though my inclination is towards build an AMM, but I would also suggest if you don't like financial stuff that much, go for uh, trying to adding cool stuff in NFT contracts. Nice. And the the question that every bootcamp student has, how do you land a job as a Web3 developer? So like right now, I I would say it's 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 getting tough. Even though people keep saying that there are jobs waiting for you that pay you a hundred thousand dollars a year, but yeah, that was the case uh, eight nine months ago when LinkedIn used to be flooded with job offers. But that's not the case right now. Uh, so but one thing stays that uh, have a lot of personal projects, have things which you can show off when you are applying for a job. Because in Web3, I have seen that you don't really have complicated interviews. The interviews are really straightforward. And most of the times, the moment the interviewer sees your uh, portfolio of projects, they know whether they are hiring you or not. And the, the interview is just formal. So make a ton of personal projects. And one great way to do that is participate in hackathons. Uh, participate in the hackathon, choose a theme and build something great out of it. Because most often you see in hackathons, there are protocols that are sponsoring hackathons. And if you build something great, that is the perfect way to uh, earn the recognition uh, in that company. And that gives you a high chance of uh, eventually landing up a job too. So yeah, if, if someone wants a very concrete uh, direction, then yeah, participate in hackathons. That's the best way. Yeah, but that's great because that involves two super important things, which is execution and involvement within the community. Yeah, exactly. that, that's great advice. Um, I mean, most of the jobs are in Ethereum and maybe, I don't know, Solana. Uh, do the and I don't know if you want to answer this, but are the salaries compatible? Uh, it, it actually highly depends on which country you are and whether the project is run by grants or it is run by funding. So if it's run by funding, then yeah, that's it. they have funds to give out. But then they are also looking for seriously good engineers. Some of them don't even consider interns. You have to be full-fledged proper engineer to join a team that has been properly funded. They might have, if if they have extreme funding, then they might have interns. But you see, in, in most of the cases, the ones that have proper funding and generally good salary, they are requiring proper engineers who have decent experience to join them. 
but then if you look at the smaller ones that are mostly run on grants or have really small entry-level funding then they are mostly hiring interns and entry-level blockchain engineers and yeah in, in that case the fund the, the salaries are definitely different and this is valid for both tezos as well as ethereum so yeah if, if you see the ones that don't have enough funding it doesn't matter whether they are in India or somewhere else, the salaries are lower than the ones who have a ton of funding. Yeah, that makes sense. And does it matter the language? Is it, um, should it focus on SmartPy, on legal? Should it be M legal? Is that relevant at all or not really? I mean, on Tezos, I wouldn't say that is relevant yet. It really depends on which one you prefer. Like, uh, I mean, late for, for plenty network, the whole uh, core smart contracts are written in SmartPy, but lately, once I started Lego, then I've been started shifting to it. So, I mean, yeah, there, there's no such inclination towards one. Uh, although for Lego, because of the functional nature, once again, uh, the, the, the amount of code is much less than what you have to write for an imperative language. So that can that is mostly the only thing for me why I choose Lego. But for jobs, uh, yeah, I, I would say both are equally good. And I've always uh, I've also noticed a lot of people in my cohort that are not uh, web developers per se, but they're, for example, bug bounty hunters, and there is a whole marketplace for people that are willing. Perhaps they won't be full-time employees, but they can find um, a source of income contributing to the community in a... Yeah. I mean, do you know what I mean? It's not a traditional, yes, I'm an employee of that company, but you can still contribute to Web3 using your own expertise. So in, in this case, DAOs really help. There's this uh, DAO called Developer DAO where they give you small tasks which so let's say if there's a company and there's a small task that needs to be done then you can just delegate to a DAO and the DAO has members and then yeah you, they can assign some member for you and you end up making some income uh, apart from that i think the 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 self initiated bounty hunting has been popular it has been popular in 2021 but right now after the bear market, as I said, the number of projects that are building out has decreased so to such a low extent that most of the projects that are out there, they don't really need a bounty hunter because they are already mature projects. But in the, in the event that you are in a market where a lot of new projects are popping up, that's really when bounty, bounty hunting gets really, really hot because, yeah, they are projects that need bounty hunters to fix what's wrong for them. And that's also another question that I had for you, because initially you said that you spend a lot of your time doing testing, and I was wondering, what does that look like? Uh, I mean, mostly that looks like just uh, trying to figure out what's, I mean, it's not about figuring out what's wrong. First, you have to prove that what you intended to do, that's actually happening. So when you're writing a test, you're just just saying that, yeah, this is what I intend my code to do. And I'm hoping that it does that. And if I'm running the test and it's failing, that means I've gone wrong somewhere. And then I go up and I have to check it again. So it, it's, I mean, it's no different from any Web2 
testing where you use something like Jest in JavaScript to test it out. It's nothing different from that. Is that a different step? Because on your uh, building a decentralized application talk, you mentioned that um, companies, they usually go to, uh, uh, I, f I forget exactly what's the audit word. Audit companies? Yes, an audit company to, <laughs> you know, like foolproof yeah. your code. So, Is that something unrelated to what you're talking about? So, uh, I mean, you still have to write the tests yourself because the audit guys, they, they basically verify what you have already written. Uh, so if you have written all the tests, then it's something that really helps them out because, and most of them, most of the audit companies right now, they demand that you have a hundred percent test coverage. Otherwise your project is not even accepted. So what they do is it's mostly a verification and most of them, it's, it's like pen, pen testing, penetration testing for security softwares. So you have everything built out, you have it internally tested, and then you give it to someone else and they try to break it. I see. I'm sure you, I, I've been following you on YouTube since I started with Thesis. Your talkings are amazing. You, you are very oh. eloquent and like I read your code. It's not just brilliant, but it's also easy to read. So I'm really glad that you are involved in the community. I couldn't thank you enough for joining this conversation. And yeah, I will share with uh, people that might have similar questions the ones that I have. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. My pleasure.